Hello everyone and welcome to another thrilling adventure of Superman. My name is Michael Bradley and I am your host on this journey through the golden age of Superman. For those listening for the first time or those coming back who need a reminder, the mission of this show, since I've kind of gotten out of the habit of saying it, is to explore the history and development of Superman via his golden age adventures in comics, newspaper, radio, and eventually on film. This is episode 7 of the show, and this time out we will be taking a look at Superman's story from Action Comics number 7. I hope that everyone's doing well. Um, I am doing really good. It's been kind of a busy week, but things are moving ahead on several projects, so that's great. Before I get into this episode, I've got a letter to read. I mentioned last episode that my old friend Michael Kaiser had sent me an email with some quick feedback... And as it happens, after recording that, he sent me another letter with more extensive comments, so I want to take a minute to read that. His letter begins, Hello Mike, just wanted to drop a line and let you know I'm really enjoying your new podcast, The Thrilling Adventures of Superman. Got a question for you. I've noticed that the women who have been featured so far in the stories, primarily Lois, but also Mary from the football episode, are really unlikable as human beings, let alone love possible love interests. Do you know of any interviews or biographies about Siegel and Schuster that delves into any problems they might have had with women growing up? Well, first of all, Mary was crazy. C-R-A-Z-Y crazy. But to answer your question, Siegel and Schuster were both pretty open about the fact that they were both shy and awkward teens and how that influenced the development of Superman. In the August 1983 issue of Nemo, the Classic Comics Library, there was an extensive interview with both Siegel and Schuster, as well as Jerry's wife, Joanne. And in that interview, Jerry and Joe are discussing the conception of the dual identity of Superman and Clark Kent. And I'm going to read a quote from Jerry. Clark Kent grew not only out of my private life, but also out of Joe's. As a high school student, I thought that someday I might be a reporter, and I had crushes on several attractive girls who either didn't know I existed or didn't care I existed. As a matter of fact, some of them looked like they hoped I didn't exist. It occurred to me, what if I was really terrific? What if I had something special going for me, like jumping over buildings or throwing cars around or something like that? Then maybe they would notice me. That night, when all of the thoughts were coming to me, the concept came to me that Superman could have a dual identity, and that in one of his identities he could be meek and mild as I was, and wear glasses the way I do. The heroine, who I figured would be a girl reporter, would think he was some sort of copy of me, a worm. Yet she would be crazy about this Superman character who could do all sorts of fabulous things. In fact, she was real wild about him, and a big inside joke was that the fellow she was crazy about was also the fellow whom she loathed. By coincidence, Joe was a carbon copy of me, so in the artwork, he was able to translate it. And he wasn't just drawing it, he was feeling it. So I don't really think it was so much them having a problem with women as, you know, women having a problem with them. And, and Siegel and Schuster were able to channel that into the work, as many creative people are able to do. And at least in later years, Siegel and Schuster both felt that that was something that really helped to sell the concept. Later in that same interview, uh, towards the end, the interviewer asked what they felt had made Superman so popular over the last 40 years. And Siegel said, If you are interested in what made Superman what it is, here's one of the keys to what made it universally acceptable. Joe and I had certain inhibitions. 
which led to wish fulfillment, which we expressed through our interest in science fiction in our comic strip. That's where the dual identity came from, and Clark Kent's problems with Lois. I imagine there are a lot of people in this world who are similarly frustrated. Joe and I both felt that way in high school, and he was able to put that feeling into sketches. So I think that explains it. If you go back and look at that story from Action Comics number 4, the difference in the way Crazy Mary treats Tommy before Superman impersonates him and after, that's exactly the difference in how Lois treats Clark versus how she treats Superman. Mary hated the bench-riding Tommy, but loved the Tommy that was a monster on the field and scored touchdown after touchdown, even though she told him to stop playing at the end of the story, which I still don't quite understand. But anyway, Michael's letter continues. I've got a follow-up question for you, too. Lois has always been a character that's hard for me to love, as it's hard for, to love anyone that doesn't love the hero of the story, regardless of what disguise he's wearing. The faux love triangle is a staple of, in the Superman mythos, but it's hard for me not to judge Lois based on how she treats Clark. Historically, who do you think are some of the best writers to have handled Lois? Well, it, it all comes down to personal preference, but I really like the way Lois was portrayed during the Triangle era, particularly the late 80s to the mid-90s. Uh, Roger Stern and Louise Simonson, etc., you know, that era's writers... They made Lois into a character that you could believe Clark would fall in love with. Other writers, I think, that have handled the character well. Um, I like Jeff Loeb, who wrote the character in Superman for All Seasons and later when he was on the ongoing title. I thought that he brought a real playfulness to the relationship. And then there's Elliot S. Magan, who I think he really understood the love triangle, and he had a lot of ideas involving Lois that were ultimately shot down by then-editor Julius Schwartz, but I think he did the best he could with what he was able to do. And I can hardly fault a lot of writers pre-crisis for sticking with the status quo of the Triangle because they weren't really allowed to do anything different. What do you listeners think? Uh, who do you think handled Lois the best over the years? Send me an email to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com and let me know. Um, you don't really see a lot of discussion about the best Lois writers, uh, so I'm curious kind of what the general feeling is out there. Michael's letter continues. Again, great podcast. Reading Golden Age tales, especially the ones that aren't necessarily memorable, are much more enjoyable when you've got great commentary such as what you've been providing to go along with it. Keep it coming. Michael Kaiser, California, USA. Well, thanks, Michael. That's, that's really nice of you to say, and I'm glad you're enjoying the show. I've had a really great time doing this so far more even than I thought I would, so, and, you know, it's only going to get better once we get into the newspaper strips and the radio show, and I know that I'm not a uh, quote-unquote professional podcaster at all, but I'm happy to know that people are enjoying, you know, what I've put together here, and hopefully you still will. Speaking of which, it's about time we get into this episode's issue. As I said at the top of the show, this episode we are looking at Action Comics number 7. The book was released sometime around November 3rd, 1938, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. It had the normal cover price of 10 cents and a cover date of December 1938. This is the final comic featuring Superman that sports a 1938 cover, and we won't miss 1938 for long though, because as important as the year was for the character, 1939 is really even more significant, because 1939 is the year that the character's popularity took off and never looked back. As for the cover, 
Finally, for the first time since his debut, Superman returns to the cover of Action Comics. That's right, folks. It took six issues, but Superman is finally back on action. The cover, which was drawn by Joe Shuster, shows Superman leaping above the city, holding a man by his foot, similar to how he treated Alex Greer back in Action Comics number one. The guy doesn't look like Greer, but the image was clearly inspired by that scene, rather than anything that happens in the issue that we're about to talk about, or that has happened since. The cover has the 64 pages of thrill seal in the upper left corner, and I've talked about that in the last couple episodes, so there's really not much else to say about it. But in the lower right corner, there's a banner that reads, Superman appearing in this and every issue. And this marks the first time for Action Comics that the name of a feature inside the comic has appeared on the front of the book. And from the best I could tell glancing through covers, it's only the third time it's happened in the history of the company. The other two being Detective Comics number 18, which I mentioned back in episode 3, and New Adventure Comics number 16 from 1937. That comic, by the way, promoted Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster's Federal Men feature, even though the cover was drawn by Craig Flessel and not Schuster. I'm not a huge fan of this cover. It's okay, but eh. Superman looks kind of stumpy, and though there's a decent amount of detail in the figures and on the street below, I think there could definitely be more. And the main buildings in the background are just big blocks of color with a few windows in the corner. Those could definitely use a lot more detail. And there's also something weird going on with Superman's cape as well. Instead of tucking into the back or sides of his collar like normal, it actually wraps all the way around his neck and sort of ends up looking like a little kid with a towel tied around his neck pretending to be Superman rather than Superman himself. But even though that there's problems with the art, it is nice to see Superman back on the cover again finally. And we'll never have to go through that large of a gap again without Superman being on the cover. And it won't be long from now that we'll get nothing but Superman covers, so that's great. The uncolored version of this artwork was reused on the Superman Comics Ashcan, which I talked about back in episode number three. So you can go back and listen to that if you're interested in learning more about comic book Ashcan issues. When the art was used there, even though the ash can was titled Superman Comics and the interior contains at least part of a Superman story, the name Superman in the corner banner is gone, though the rest of the text remains. And I thought that was strange at first, but when I looked closer and compared the two covers, I think what they did is that they just used the black film or the black plate from the original printing of the artwork which would make sense given that these were just quick and dirty additions to secure copyrights. And since the name of the Superman was in red on the original cover, it just didn't carry over to the ash can. The Superman figure from the cover, with the background and even the guy that he's holding removed, was also used on the cover to Superman Chronicles Volume 1 trade paperback. The Superman story in this issue was written by Jerry Siegel, still signing as Jerome Siegel, with art by Joe Schuster. The Grand Comic Book Database again credits Paul Loretta as editor and as possibly doing inks, but no other source that I could find corroborated that. And Vin Sullivan is still credited as editor, of course. I was only able to find one title for the story, surprisingly, but remember, all of these stories were untitled originally anyway. But the title given later for this story is Superman Joins the Circus. 
Anyone want to guess what the story's about? The story opens with a half-page splash, the basics of which I detailed last episode. And this time out, the panel shows Superman lifting a fully loaded trolley car over his head. Why he's doing this isn't clear, but combined with the city skyline in the background, it makes for a nicely rendered image. Unfortunately, in this panel and throughout the story, Superman's boots are colored yellow. Thankfully, this is the first, last, and only appearance of the yellow-booted Superman because, as you might expect, the yellow boots look absolutely terrible. It completely throws off the balance of the costume. The yellow on Superman's costume works best as an accent color, with the largest yellow section being located in the center of Superman's chest with the shield. Making a significant element like the boots yellow, it makes for a bright distraction that draws the eye away from the shield, which should be the focal point of the costume. This panel also features two other things of note. Most prominent is the Superman title logo, which is much more refined than we've seen until now. It isn't quite as slick as the one that will come along and be used throughout the years until the 1980s, but it is a very noticeable step in that direction. And we'll see this version, or one very similar to it, since I don't think it was photostatted, used on covers and interiors several more times as we go forward. The other thing I noticed here, for the first time, is a small line of type directly below the logo which reads, Registered U.S. Patent Office. This line is also on the cover near the Action Comics logo for the first time this issue. So that's another step forward in DC securing the rights on the character. I looked at other issues for the month, and this month's issue of Detective Comics gains the same line, but the other issues out this month don't. I'm not exactly sure why only Action and, and Detective, and the Superman feature of course, were registered, or why it was done just now, especially when Detective has been around for 20 some odd issues, but it still seems pretty noteworthy. The intro text is reworked a little from last issue. This time out it reads, Friend of the helpless and oppressed is Superman, a man possessing the strength of a dozen Samsons. Lifting and rending gigantic weights, vaulting over skyscrapers, racing a bullet, possessing skin and penetrable to even steel are his physical assets used in his one-man battle against evil and injustice. I like this description better than the one from last issue. It's much more dynamic and exciting even though it doesn't roll off the tongue quite as smoothly. That possessing the strength of a dozen Samsons paints a much more visual picture and is a lot more powerful than the strongest man on earth tag. Most people are familiar with Samson and his Herculean strength, and here's Superman as strong as a dozen Samsons, which is just very nice and very, very dramatic. Getting into the story itself, it begins with a group of Daily Star employees, including Lois and a guy named Curly. Yes, his name is Curly. Gathered in the office chatting, with Curly talking about what a weakling Clark Kent is, and proceeds to say that he'll give the rest of the group a demonstration. He walks up to Clark and grabs his tie and flips it into the air, telling Clark that his tie is out. Clark bumbles around, but thanks him nonetheless. Curly then goes back to the group and brags, and says it shows what a wimp Clark is, because any other guy would have punched him, but Clark actually thanked him. One of the paper's employees says he should lay off, but Curly thinks it's fun and proceeds to do it again. Curly is, without a doubt, the most unlikable character introduced in the books so far. Siegel, in his three decades of writing for DC, created many likable characters, even the villains in a love-to-hate-em kind of way, 
But this guy, thankfully he never appears again after this story because he's, he's your basic obnoxious jerk. I've worked with guys like Curly. I've known guys like Curly. I'm sure we all have at some point. And I just don't like him. Which, really, when you think about it, is odd because he's in effect a proto version of the Steve Lombard character that would be introduced by Carrie Bates in the 70s. Even to the point of calling Clark Clarky or Clarksy. And I liked Steve Lombard. But, I don't know. Maybe my utter dislike for this character is a testament to just how good of a character he is. If that's the role Siegel wanted for him. But, anyway, to her credit, Lois actually seems to feel sorry for Clark here. And she helps Clark, well, or so she says, not by standing up to Curly, but by quote-unquote rescuing Clark by telling him that the paper's editor wants to see him in his office. That seems like a nice gesture, but we find out in the next panel that the editor really does want to see him, and soon. So, was Lois just sitting on this information the whole time while Clark was getting bullied by Curly? Would she ever have told him if she didn't have to allegedly save him? Or was she just waiting for an opportune time to, you know, dose Clark's drink and steal the assignment for herself again? We don't know. Anyway, Clark heads to see the boss, and the editor tells him that the Jordan Circus is in town, and he wants Clark to interview the circus's owner for a story. A short while later, Clark arrives at the circus grounds, and as he nears the owner's wagon, overhears an argument. Cut to inside the wagon, and we find Jordan, the owner of Jordan Circus, arguing with one Derek Niles. It seems Jordan owes Niles money, and with the circus losing cash, he has no way to pay. Niles is demanding that Jordan take him on as a partner in the circus or risk losing everything. He says the crowds are staying away from the circus in droves, so Jordan has no other choice. However, Jordan refuses, saying that if he takes Niles on, he will lose everything, including his self-respect, and shows Niles the door. As Niles storms out and roughs his way past Clark, who has been waiting just outside, Jordan sobs to himself that what Niles has said is true that if he doesn't raise the money, his life's work, the circus, will be gone. Figuring a grown man crying like a baby over losing his life's work is a perfect time for an interview, Clark barges into the trailer, introduces himself, and asks if Jordan has anything to say to the paper. Jordan composes himself and gives the typical promotional speech about how they are the greatest circus on earth, how they've got acrobats, clowns, animals, trapeze acts, tightrope walkers, freak shows, podcasters... Oh... No, not that last one. But they've got all the normal circus trappings associated with the fine and reputable Jordan Circus, and in fact are expecting such a crowd they've hired hundreds of extra attendants to handle the audience. Hundreds! Clark takes copious notes and then leaves, wishing Jordan the best of luck. As he exits the grounds, he ruminates about Jordan's bravery. Even faced with certain disappointment, Jordan keeps his optimism, Clark figures. A guy like that deserves a break, and by golly, that's just what I'm going to give him. By golly, indeed. Later that evening, the circus opens with all its normal fun, amusement, bells and whistles, but unfortunately, the crowd is next to nil. While the ticket taker informs Jordan of the sad news, a clown and the strong man commiserate to one another that it's difficult to perform staring at the nearly empty stands. Well, I say they commiserate to one another, it's really just the clown man clown man, the clown mourning the lack of attendance while the strong man tells him to shut up and perform. You'd think he'd be a little more upset himself, but 
Anyway, one of the audience members just happens to be a certain Daily Star reporter who thinks to himself that the show is good but lacks pizzazz and maybe Superman should lend a hand. Later that evening, back at his apartment, Clark creepily watches himself get undressed in the mirror and soon before us stands the mighty form of Superman. With a few narrative captions that would make Stan Lee jealous, Superman leaps through the night. No, really. This narration is fantastic. Just take a listen. One lithe step brings the Man of Steel to his open window, and in another moment his tremendously power muscles fling him into the night like a living projectile. Sometime later, a weird figure hurtles down into the midst of the Jordan Circus lot and approaches the owner's wagon. How awesome is that? My paltry summaries of these stories can't... They just simply can't compare with reading them firsthand and soaking in all the colorful verbiage and wording that Siegel put into them. You'll also note that in the part I just read, Superman is again referred to as the Man of Steel, a title we saw used for the first time last issue. So, Superman arrives once more at the Jordan Circus and sees the light on in Jordan's wagon, remarking that all the troubles with the circus must be keeping him awake. Of course, to me, this begs the question of what exactly Superman had planned on doing going to the circus right now. He seems surprised that Jordan is awake and it's nighttime, so the circus is closed. So, what exactly were his plans for going there in the middle of the night? Regardless, the scene switches to inside the wagon where we find Jordan lamenting over the piling bills and dwindling income. Suddenly, to Jordan's surprise, Superman enters the wagon. Jordan mistakes Superman for a burglar and tells him that he's out of luck because the circus has no money. Superman tries to tell Jordan that he's mistaken, but Jordan pulls out a pistol and, and tells Superman to put his hands up. Instead of further trying to explain himself like a sane person would do, Superman simply leaps into action and, despite Jordan's further warnings, wrestles the gun away from him and crushes it in his hand. With the danger out of the way, though really is a pistol any danger to a man who has shrugged off artillery fire? But still, with the gun at least out of the way, Superman tells Jordan that he wants a job with the circus, as a strongman. But Jordan tells him that he already has a strongman that can bend iron and lift metal balls. In response, Superman asks Jordan to step outside, then proceeds to lift Jordan's wagon overhead with one hand, then smash it, and finally dropkick the pieces into space, or at least a pretty fair distance. This was the man's office, possibly his home, or at least his home away from home, and Superman just smashed it into pieces and threw the remnants into space. Thanks, Superman. Once again, our hero goes about helping people in the most bizarre way possible. Despite the fact that Superman just cost him an enormous amount of money and property damage, Jordan doesn't seem to mind and agrees that, yes, that is far more than his current strongman can do, but concedes that the circus isn't making any money and he couldn't afford to pay him even if he did hire him. But Superman tells him that he will be, because all the circus needs is one big attraction to draw the crowds, and they'll have it with himself, Superman. It's at this point, and only this point, that Jordan realizes who he's talking to, with Superman still being played largely as an urban legend type figure. Jordan is beside himself, exuberant that the mighty Superman is working for him, commenting that it's simply too good to be true. The next day, full-page ads appear in local newspapers, including presumably the Daily Star, touting Superman's appearance at the circus. Superb, magnificent, they say. Staggers the imagination. Must be seen to be believed, and even then you won't believe it. 
The ads also proclaim that this is Superman's world premiere. And as we'll see in upcoming issues, this is really the starting point of Superman being more well-known by the general populace. We'll still get some references to characters not quite recognizing him, but for the most part, he becomes more of a public figure at this point. It seems to me that Siegel was really planning these stories, slowly advancing the character, rather than just haphazardly sending Superman on adventures. We had our first four stories, which my gut tells me were the bunch that were done prior to the sale of Superman. Then we had the Superman vs. Nature story in the beginning of the Love Triangle number 5. Then, last issue in this, we have a very subtle subplot of Superman being unveiled to the public at large. And all of this is, is working towards moving the character forward. This isn't something that I ever really paid too much attention to on earlier reads, but on rereading these and breaking them down for the show, I'm picking up on these subtler things and it's making me love them all the more. So, with the ads, news of course spreads of Superman's appearance at the circus. In Niles' office, an associate informs Niles of the news. The associate isn't given a name here, because Siegel had this unfortunate tendency to not name characters, even when they played a significant role in the story. We find out later that his name is Trigger, but it doesn't come until we're almost at the end of the story, almost as an afterthought. So, anyway, Trigger shows Niles the ad, but Niles doesn't understand what it's all about but he decides to go to the circus to check it out anyway. At the Daily Star, Lois catches wind of the item and, of course, dashes off to catch a glimpse of her latest obsession. Back at the circus, crowds mob the grounds, curious about this Superman character. As a thrilled Jordan rakes in the cash, praising Superman for drawing such a crowd, Lois and Niles separately fight their way through the gathered horde. As people are seated, a roar falls over the crowd, all talking amongst themselves about Superman who he is, if he's human, exactly what is driving the excitement surrounding him, etc. With a blare of trumpets, the circus begins. The clowns clown, the acrobats acrobat, the animals... animal. <laughs> but the crowd is unhappy. They begin fevered calls for Superman. Finally bowing to their demands, the ringmaster enters the ring and announces that they're not going to waste any more time. If it's Superman they want, it's Superman they'll get. The crowd explodes at the news, and Lois squeezes a girly squee, delighted to see her dream lover. Her words, not mine. And when I read the dream lover line, I laughed, because dream lover would be the title of a 1959 song written and performed by Bobby Darren. In 2004, an autobiographical film about Darren titled Beyond the Sea was made. It's a very good movie, by the way, but it starred Kevin Spacey and Kate Bosworth. Later, Spacey was cast as Lex Luthor in 2006's Superman Returns, and it was his work with her in Beyond the Sea that led Spacey to recommend to director Brian Singer that Bosworth be cast as Lois Lane. Everything comes back to Superman. And, <laughs> if that's not enough Superman connection, Beyond the Sea also starred Bob Hoskins, who, also in 2006, would portray Eddie Mannix in the pseudobiographical movie about George Reeves, Hollywoodland. But I digress. So the ringmaster has announced that Superman will finally be coming on stage. The other acts clear the ring, and out comes a strongman and starts to perform his act. The crowd is less than pleased and responds with a thunder of boos and demands for their money back. Niles and Trigger jeer, thinking Jordan has made a colossal blunder and that the crowd will eventually lynch him. 
Suddenly, high overhead, a colorful figure swings through the air on the trapeze. A series of flips and every eye in the house is glued on the amazing acrobatics when the figure suddenly misses the bar and plummets towards the ground. The crowd stares on in utter horror. Women hide their eyes as the figure twists and turns, hurtling nearer and nearer to the ground, when suddenly he rights himself and lands feet first completely unharmed. The figure then steps up, grabbing both the strongman and the iron dumbbells and commences to juggle them one and all with ease. The loudspeakers blare an announcement to the crowd. Ladies and gentlemen, we give you Superman! And the crowd leaps to their feet in thunderous applause and cheers. Niles, Trigger, and the rest of the audience watch in amazement as Superman continues his act, including in a panel that reminded me a lot of John Severin's cover to Action Comics Weekly number 630 from 1988, lifting an elephant overhead using one hand. We then get a quick panel of a drunk renouncing his liquor after witnessing Superman's amazing feats. And this is similar to the scene with the train conductors back in episode number 4. I'm not sure if there was a theme Siegel was pushing here with the drunks, or if it was just a gag he found funny enough to be recurring, but it's funny in a really more weird-than-anything kind of way. Anyway, as Superman continues to perform, Niles grabs Trigger and the two beat a hasty retreat, leaving the circus grounds where they can figure out what to do. With the money from the now much larger crowd, Jordan will be able to pay off the money he owes quickly, and Niles won't be able to get his hands on the circus. I can't help but wonder why Niles wants the circus in the first place if it's performing so poorly, but oh well. Talking things over at a nearby diner, Niles decides that if a few accidents, air quotes, accidents, were to occur, maybe a few performers or a few customers were to get hurt, that people would start avoiding the circus. And that would be just too bad for Jordan. Back at the circus, Lois and the other reporters try to fight their way backstage for an interview with Superman, but are turned away by a guy that looks strangely like a bellhop. Presumably some kind of circus security of some sort. As we know, Lois isn't one to take no for an answer, so she hatches the plan to sneak into Superman's dressing room after hours and wait for him to show up the next day. No, no, that's... that's not creepy at all, Lois. <laughs> so... That evening, Lois craftily breaks into the tent by simply crawling underneath one of the sides, but once inside, spots a shadowy figure and freezes in her tracks. The figure turns out to be Trigger, who is in the middle of using a saw on one of the tent's support beams. He spots Lois and grabs her. The commotion draws the attention of Crax, the circus ground's guard dog, and the dog charges at the crook and Lois. A swift boot to the face from Trigger and the dog is knocked unconscious. This seems like nothing at the moment, but it comes into play, and it plays an important part later, so make note. Somehow, in all of this, Lois is likewise knocked unconscious. It's really not explained how, but hopefully Trigger didn't kick her in the face as well. But Trigger reasons that since Lois has seen her face, he has to take care of her. The next morning, Lois wakes up, bound at hand and foot, in the office of Derek Niles. Niles is berating Trigger for bringing Lois there because now he has to get rid of her. He tells Trigger to go back to the circus and let him know when the alleged accidents happen. So, Trigger goes back to the circus and positions himself near the exit so he can make a quick getaway once stuff starts hitting the fan. And a short while later it does, when the circus's lion escapes thanks to the cage door that Trigger had opened. I'm not real sure when Trigger was supposed to have opened the cage, because he clearly couldn't have done it the night before, and yet the text gives no indication that he did it just now. 
In fact, it says he went to the stands and sat down, so that's odd. But the lion has escaped and is naturally causing people to freak out. Thankfully, Superman is on the scene and in a scene far less exciting than it should have been, is able to tackle the lion, subdue it, and lead it, well, more like carry it by the scruff of its neck, back to its cage. The audience is relieved and settles back into its seats, but just at that moment, a terrible scream pierces the air. The trapeze bar has snapped, thanks to Trigger's meddling, and again, we never saw Trigger tampering with the trapeze act, but at least here, I think it's conceivable that he could have done it the night before, where it's not so much with a lion's cage. Anyway, the broken trapeze has sent the performer plummeting towards the ground. Superman leaps into the air and is able to catch the performer and set her safely on the ground. He begins to wonder if something might be up that's causing all these accidents, when suddenly, the support beam Trigger had tampered with the night before begins to give way. Superman once more springs into action, bracing the huge support pole while circus workers are able to repair it. And again, we have another weird plot hole here because Trigger sawed the pole in half, and this is the tent's main support pole, so the idea that they were able to repair that in any quick and structurally sound way is... it's a bit odd. But while Superman is bracing the pole so it can be repaired, he notices that Crax, the guard dog, is barking quite fiercely at Trigger, who is trying to make his getaway. Superman wonders aloud if it has anything to do with Crax being found unconscious earlier that morning. Superman, apparently no longer needed to hold up the tent, grabs Trigger and asks him what he knows about the attempts to sabotage the circus. Trigger plays dumb, but Superman don't play that, and responds by tossing Trigger a good 50 feet into the air, then catching him. He threatens to do it again, minus the catching part, unless Trigger tells him what he wants to know. And Trigger confesses everything from Niles hiring him to Lois being kidnapped and that Niles was going to get rid of her. Superman then apparently just leaves Trigger at the circus and races off to Niles' office and leaps through the window just in time to see Niles holding Lois at gunpoint. It's hard to believe that Lois is still alive at this point. A fair amount of time seems to have passed for Trigger to get to the circus wait for all the accidents to happen, then go through the bit with Superman. So, again, we've got a weird gap in the plot that's really only there because, well, Lois can't die. <laughs> anyway, Niles points the gun at Superman and fires repeatedly, but the bullets bounce off him harmlessly, causing Niles to faint. Lois tries to thank Superman for saving her life, but Superman tells her it will have to wait for some other time and leaps out the window. Apparently just leaving Lois there with Niles passed out on the floor. The next panel's narration tells us that with both Niles and Trigger jailed, how they got there, especially Trigger is anyone's guess, but with them out of the way, Clark returns to the Daily Star and is again confronted by everyone's favorite jerk, Curly, who proceeds to go about the business of flipping Kent's tie again. Thankfully, Clark grows a bit of backbone and decides Curly needs to be taught a lesson. A short while later, as Curly walks through the office, a hand reaches out, ripping Curly's suit off in one fell swoop leaving him standing in his underwear, much to the amusement of Lois and the other star employees. This story was... alright, I guess. The first half was great, but there were a lot of plot holes in the back half, like when Trigger had opportunity to tamper with everything, why Superman just left Niles and Trigger where they were, and how they ended up in jail. Siegel spent a lot of pages setting things up, which was fine by itself, but... The consequence of that was that the ending was rushed. He had to cram a lot of stuff into those last five or six pages, 
and that meant all of the action got squeezed down into just a few panels. Several more panels during the sequence when Superman is tussling with the lion or averting the other disasters would have been welcome, even if it was just to see him saving some innocent bystanders, because as it is, it seems the only person in any imminent danger was the trapeze artist. This is really one of those stories that I liked a lot more before I started dissecting it for the show, but that happens. As I said earlier, I like that Siegel is consciously trying to move the characters forward, especially concerning the public awareness of Superman and, to a lesser degree, the relationship between Superman and Lois. Though these stories are still very much standalones, when you put them together and read them in order, you see a larger progression in the overall tale of the characters, which is very nice. Even the scenes with Curly, who I still find unlikable and annoying, it shows Siegel was trying to create a world for these stories and build up the lives of the characters rather than simply composing stories of random events and sequences where Superman's abilities come into play. And I like the basic setup of this story quite a bit because it shows Superman stepping up to use his abilities to help someone that's down on his luck rather than a victim. And even though Jordan eventually does become a victim and the story has a definite villain, that wasn't Superman's impetus for getting involved. So again we have Siegel playing with different ideas of how Superman can help those in need without falling into a cliched plot of Nasty McVillain does something bad, Superman stops him. That I think a lot of people assume is the sole plot of Golden Age comic book stories. One thing I noticed with the issue is that there doesn't seem to be much in way of the love triangle here. Sure, we had Lois drooling almost to the point of creepiness over Superman, but in their brief scenes together at the beginning of the story, Lois seems much kinder to Clark, nearly to the point of defending him, or at least wishing Curly would back off. See, Mike, Lois isn't completely detestable as a human being. I mean, she does have some redeeming qualities. Of course, there was that issue of her not telling Clark that the boss wanted to see him, possibly getting Clark fired, eventually. Hmm. Anyway, the art in this issue is a step down from last issue. Um, we're again seeing more detail in the figures and especially in the backgrounds, but unfortunately it isn't quite as much as last issue, and as we get nearer to the end of the story, we get more panels with just minimal backgrounds or none at all. Except for Cracks the Guard Dog, who, in the panel where we get the clearest look at him, looks more like a horse than a dog, it's fairly typical Joe Schuster artwork. In a couple of panels here, and he did this in a panel or two last issue as well, we see Schuster experimenting more with silhouetted figures, and I like that because it gives a bit of a noir feel. Superman shouldn't be noir, though the use of the visual stylings of film noir, I think, really enhances the drama of these stories. Uh, if you're familiar with the Fleischer cartoons, they used them to great effect there. And Schuster never goes full-on using noir visuals, even to the point like they did in the Fleischer cartoons, but I like that he's experimenting around with them some here and there, because I really think it adds a, a layer of depth to his artwork. The unfortunate thing about the art in this issue is that it marks the beginning of a change in Schuster's art. In most stories from here on out, at least for a good long time, we'll see the art stick to a strict eight-panel grid. Occasionally they'll break out of it slightly or they'll shift to a six-panel grid, but for the most part it's a consistent layout of eight equal-sized panels. 
Apparently, this was done at the request of editor Vin Sullivan. He had actually wanted them to do to use that format from the beginning, but Schuster had been experimenting with larger panels and other layouts, and according to what Siegel said in later interviews, he and Schuster stuck to their guns and were able to get away with the more creative layouts, at least for a time. I have never read any information about why they eventually went to the 8-panel grid, but I would guess that both increased pressure from Sullivan and the soon-to-be greatly increased workload were both factors. If there's a bright side to the 8-panel grid format, it's that it actually gives Siegel more room for story. These Golden Age stories are not decompressed at all, and you'll find writers packing a lot of story into every panel. With 8 panels per page, rather than the fluctuating number, Siegel has that much more room to expand on stories, so while the rigid grid does stymie Schuster's creativity and hinder most opportunities for memorable splash panels, the benefit of it is that we will start seeing denser stories. Aside from the mistakenly colored yellow boots I mentioned earlier, there's not much change at all in the costume this time out. His trunks are mistakenly colored yellow on one panel as well, so clearly a lot of coloring issues still persist, but at least there's more consistency in the actual line art itself from issue to issue. This story has only been reprinted twice that I'm aware of, first in Superman the Action Comics Archives Volume 1, and more recently in Superman Chronicles Volume 1. That makes this the earliest Superman story not to get reprinted before, you know, modern times. Elsewhere in the book, we've got the standard features of Chuck Dawson, Pet Morgan, Marco Polo, Tex Thompson, Scoop Scanlon, and Zaytara. Nothing outstanding of note of any of the features, but what I did notice in, the, in this issue is that there are a couple more advertisements than in previous issues. And starting next issue and in upcoming ones, we're going to see even more. One interesting ad in this issue is for the Siegel Schuster School of Humor. What this was, was a correspondence course titled How to Be Funny, a Practical Course of Serious Study and Creative Humor. The ad claims the course is prepared by the creators of Superman, but in actuality it was put together by Jerry Siegel and Frank Schuster. Frank was Joe's cousin and one half of the famous, or at this point soon to be famous, comedy duo Wayne and Schuster. The pair, Wayne and Schuster, started out as a theater show, then moved to radio and eventually television. And I'll put a couple links in the show notes for those who want to learn more about Wayne and Schuster. But one interesting thing about the pair is that a series of specials they did for CBS in the 1960s were scored by John Williams. who would go on, of course, eventually to score Superman the movie and write the famous Superman theme music. Everything comes back to Superman, folks. As for Jerry Siegel and Frank Schuster's School of Humor, it was a 134-page, 10-chapter correspondence course that looked at the fundamentals and mechanics of humor from an analytical perspective. I've never seen this firsthand myself, most of the information I have about it comes from the book Siegel and Schuster's Funny Man, the first Jewish superhero from the creators of Superman by Thomas Andre and Mel Gordon. But apparently it is copyrighted with the Library of Congress, so a copy of it still exists somewhere. Interestingly, in Superman number 75 from 1952, Edmund Hamilton would write The Prankster Star Pupil. In this story, the villainous prankster opened his own school of humor 
and attempted to use the students as distractions while he committed his various crimes. I don't know if Hamilton's use of the School of Humor was a tip of the hat to Siegel, but I do know that Hamilton and Siegel were friends, even as far back as the pre-comic science fiction fan magazines they both wrote for, so it's definitely possible. Other books out this month from Detective? Not much noteworthy here either, but there was More Fun Comics number 38 and Adventure Comics number 33, both of which had Craig Flessel covers. And there was also Detective Comics number 22 with a great Crimson Avenger cover by Jim Chambers. I talked about the Crimson in episode 5, if you missed that episode. The Siegel and Schuster Slam Bradley story in that issue featured the return of, and I may be mispronouncing this, Foo on You, and that's notable because he was the villain from the very first Slam Bradley story all the way back in Detective Comics number one. While attending a demonstration in radiology, student Peter Parker was bitten by a spider which had accidentally been exposed to radioactive rays. Through a miracle of science, Peter soon found that he had gained the arachnid's powers and had, in effect, become a human spider. Stan Lee presents... Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web, any size, catches seeds, just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Welcome to Amazing Spider-Man Classics, where every month I and some friends will be discussing every book, every guest appearance, and every cameo we can find of our favorite web slinger, the Amazing Spider-Man. Are you tired of arguing over whether Ben Riley should have taken over the webs? Do you grow weary of the brand new day with all of its controversy? Then return with us to the early days. Return with us to the classics. Amazing Spider-Man Classics at Amazing Spider-Man. Well, once more, we have come to that time of the show that is the end. I want to thank you again for joining me this time out, and thanks again to Michael Kaiser for emailing in. I'd love to hear more feedback on the show. If you have questions or thoughts or comments on the show or the issues we talk about, those can be sent to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. Please email me your thoughts because I'd love to hear from you. As always, show notes from this episode, including images and links and more, can be found at greatcrypton.com. There is also a new way to connect to the show, and I've just set this up in the last couple weeks, so it's pretty much brand new, and that's on Facebook. With that, you can get updates when I post new episodes and, and post comments on the Facebook page as well. The link to the show's Facebook page is also at greatcrypton.com. If you want to subscribe to the show directly, you can do so via iTunes or the RSS feed, and links to those are both available at greatcrypton.com as well. If you subscribe to the show via iTunes, uh, please leave an iTunes review if you have time. It helps people know that the show is worth listening to, or, or not worth listening to, I guess, depending on the review. Either way, it helps people out. Uh, let's see what else. Oh, there's also the Superman Podcast Network at fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork. There's close to a dozen or so shows that make up the network now, so you can stay up to date on all the Superman podcasts that way. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Once again, I thank you very much for listening to the Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. Goodbye.